Hello, and welcome to the September 2015 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Arthur Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. First up, it has now been a couple months since the Obergefell marriage equality ruling was handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court. With the ongoing saga of Rowan County, Kentucky clerk Kim Davis, we seem to have the first major religious freedom conflict that uh, Justice Clarence Thomas predicted in his dissent. Can you tell us the backstory and provide our listeners the latest from yesterday's court hearing regarding whether Miss Davis is in contempt art? Okay, we should uh, indicate that we're recording this on September 4th. So your reference to tomorrow's court, yesterday's court You're hearing, right. rather. Uh, well, actually, uh, to preface this, we should point out that the rollout of the Obergefell decision around the country has gone relatively smoothly. Mm -hmm. That at the time of the decision, there were just a few more than a dozen states that didn't have marriage equality. And within a reasonable period of time after the ruling, uh, the Fifth Circuit and the Eighth Circuit both indicated uh, implementing the court's decision. They were either affirming or uh, reversing lower court decisions accordingly. Uh, appeals were withdrawn in the Eleventh Circuit. So uh, implementation uh, at that level was very smooth, and even though they stated disagreement with the rulings, most state governors and attorney general fell into line with a little quibbling here and there. There was uh, some spots of resistance in places like Texas and Kansas, uh, the most significant, probably Alabama, as one might have expected, given the drama that was playing out there over the earlier part of the year after district courts had ruled uh, in Alabama. We still, as of the date we're recording this, have, and I, I see different numbers in different news sources, either 11 or 13 probate judges in Alabama who were refusing to issue marriage licenses. And uh, whether action could be taken against them is uncertain because in Alabama, probate judges are allowed to issue licenses but not by statute commanded to issue licenses. And uh, uh, people in a county where the probate judge is just not issuing licenses has to go to another county to get a license. Uh, once they get a license, they can get married anywhere in the state. Uh, in Kentucky, by contrast, a statute uh, mandates that the county clerks issue marriage licenses to people who are qualified. And the statute provides that the county clerk shall certify by his or her signature uh, to the proposed marriage officiant that the people who have obtained the marriage license are qualified under Kentucky law to marry. And herein lies the problem. There are three county clerks in Kentucky who are refusing to issue marriage licenses to anybody. Uh, They've said that, that they don't want to discriminate against gay people, but they just cannot, in good conscience, according to religious faith, issue a document in which they are identified as certifying to a marriage officiant that the people who obtained the license were qualified to get married. Uh, the one who's drawn the most attention, mainly because uh, she was sued, is Kim Davis, the uh, elected county clerk in Rowan County, a small rural county, the county seat where her office is located has a population of about 7,000 people. That's Moorhead, Kentucky. And uh, actually, 
given the large number of counties in Kentucky crammed into a relatively geographically small state, it isn't a huge journey to a neighboring county to get a license. However, it, it is a hardship, obviously, and uh, people who pay taxes in uh, Rowan County tend to think that they should be able to get a license there to marry. So uh, several uh, same-sex couples who showed up for licenses in Rowan County and some different sex couples who showed up for licenses. Uh, this is a, a problem because what Kim Davis did is she just said, we're not going to issue licenses to anybody. Uh, she's one of the people who said, I'm not going to discriminate. I'm just not going to issue licenses to anybody because of my religious uh, concerns here. I don't want to be seen as uh, stating that same-sex marriages are valid in one, any way. One thing I thought was interesting, too, I think a lot of people have thought uh, the Liberty Council, the group that's representing her here, found sort of a found someone to, to take on this fight for them that they were just itching to have. But, she did it on her own. And it's also interesting. She apparently wrote letters to the governor and state legislatures all throughout the winter and spring saying, this this is coming, please do something. I, so I think she has, yeah. whatever you think about it, uh, yeah. thought it through. And and, uh, and she's, she's been insistent that she, she doesn't bear any hatred for the people who've sued her. In fact, at the end of the hearing where she was held in contempt the other day, she said thank you to the judge because he treated her civilly. Uh, you know, and, and with respect. Uh, so, so the issue is that she closed down the office. Uh, she has six deputy clerks, one of whom is her son, Nathan. Uh, she was elected to this position just last year after her mother retired as clerk. Her mother had been clerk for more than three decades, and she had worked in the office as a deputy clerk uh, under her mother's direction. So she ran for the office. Nepotism was an issue in the election. There were some claims that the... And she's a Democrat. Yeah, she's a Democrat, that the county clerk's office should not be the preserve of one family. But she managed to eke out a majority. It wasn't an overwhelming win, but she eked out a majority. She was sworn in in January. She swore the oath that every public official in uh, Kentucky is required to swear to support the Constitution of the state of Kentucky and the United States of America. And... Uh, as you say, she saw this coming. She asked for relief. And in fact, a relatively large minority of the clerks in Kentucky have jointly petitioned the governor. They said, please call a special session of the legislature to pass some relief for us here, for those of us who have religious objections, uh, perhaps similar to the statute that was passed in North Carolina, which excuses local magistrates from issuing marriage licenses if they have religious objections. And the word is that some significant number of local magistrates have done so in North Carolina under that statute. Uh, or perhaps, and this was a suggestion, that they switch the marriage license application process to an online process run by the state so people could get their licenses, uh, you know, print out a document uh, after certifying online that they meet the requirements. And at some point, of course, after the marriage is performed, the document would have to be registered somewhere. Maybe it could be registered with the state. Maybe it doesn't have to be registered with the county clerks. Uh, maybe the county court will be designated to receive it, but it could be done in City Hall instead. But uh, the point is they wanted to create a process where the clerks wouldn't have to have their religious uh, views challenged in this way. Uh, but uh, the governor refused to call a special session. It cost several hundred thousand dollars. He said, I'm not going to spend that money on this. They can wait till the next regular session, which is until next winter. So in the meantime, she's not issuing licenses. Uh, and some same-sex and different-sex couples represented by the ACLU filed suit against her before Judge David Bunning. 
Uh, David Bunning is a conservative Republican who was appointed to the bench by George W. Bush. Uh, his father was a very conservative his senator. His father was a conservative senator who's also a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame because of his pitching exploits yeah. before he went into politics. Uh, but Judge Bunning has a track record on dealing with gay issues when there's a clear statute applicable. Uh, he was faced with the case uh, relatively early in his tenure on the bench involving a refusal by a school district to allow a gay-straight alliance in the local high school. And it's pretty clear under the Equal Access statute passed by Congress that if a school allows non-curricular clubs, it has to allow a gay-straight alliance. And he just went right down the middle on that case. He said, here's the statute, here's the requirement. You guys have to allow this gay-straight alliance. I have no idea what he thinks about gay people. Or uh, you know whether he's well, a. The New York Times reported this morning that he that his mother said that he's opposed that he's to opposed it. to same yeah. sex marriage. And in fact, he's intimated uh, in his opinions that you know many people are opposed to the Supreme Court's decision. Not everyone agrees with it, but his position is that you take an oath of office, you run for an office that has a job description which includes issuing marriage licenses. And you can't just refuse, based on your personal religious objections, to issue these marriage licenses, that uh, when you're acting as a public official, you're not acting as a private citizen. Your First Amendment rights as a private citizen are preserved. You can believe anything you want. You can, outside of your office, advocate anything you want. But within your office, you're required to perform your job duties. This is a ministerial function. And so the judge issued uh, an order... On, April, on August 12th, went through in great detail all the legal arguments and concluded that the plaintiffs were entitled to a preliminary injunction ordering the office to immediately begin issuing marriage licenses. And at the same time, he said, because uh, Liberty Council representing uh, Kim Davis made it clear that they were going to appeal to the Sixth Circuit, uh, he said, uh, and I'm not going to put this order into effect for a little while to give her a chance to ask the Sixth Circuit for relief. But in his April 12th order, he didn't, uh, rather August 12th order, he didn't specify a date. And there was uh, a lot of uh, concern about that. Uh, and Liberty Council sought a stay. And on August 17th, he denied the motion for the stay. But he said he would temporarily stay his preliminary injunction while they asked the Sixth Circuit. Uh, you have to ask the district judge first before you can ask the Court of Appeals. Uh, and uh, when it was noted that his order of, of the 17th was a bit unclear, he issued a clarifying order on August 19th saying, I give you until the end of the month. You have till August 31st to get a stay from the Sixth Circuit. Uh, so they uh, promptly filed a petition for a stay with the Sixth Circuit, which quickly turned it down on August 26th. And uh, then there was a question, did that mean that Judge Bunning's temporary stay was over? And uh, the attorneys from Liberty Council advised Davis that she still had till August 31st and that they would prepare a Supreme Court uh, application for her. And so she took the position that she was not required to issue licenses in, until August 31st, if then. Uh, and still people showed up at the county courthouse asking for licenses and were turned down. Um, so there was a bit of a brouhaha at that point. Uh, she filed with the Supreme Court, 
which had to decide this over the weekend because uh, her filing was uh, the, the weekend right before August 31st, which was a Monday. And on August 31st itself, the big question was, is the Supreme Court going to say anything? Because among the things that were included in her application was uh, an application to stay the preliminary injunction until the Supreme Court decided whether to grant her a stay. And they had first filed a motion for that with Judge Bunning, who said no. And uh, the Supreme Court obviated the need to respond to that because early in the evening on August 31st, shortly after the close of business for the day, they issued a denial of the stay without explanation. The application had been to Justice Kagan, who is the circuit justice for the Sixth Circuit, uh, but she referred it to the court. And there is no recorded dissent that we know of, which doesn't mean that it was a unanimous decision. They don't always announce the vote, but no one dissented. Uh, so it seems pretty clear that the Supreme Court, having decided back on June 26th that same-sex couples have a constitutional right to marry, that's the law of the land. And a public official who is involved in his or her official capacity in administering the marriage process does not have a right to deny a constitutional right to a member of the public based on their personal religious beliefs. And uh, this is, is very clear from uh, Judge Bunning's decision. So when she persisted in not issuing a marriage license on September 1st, when the couples showed up again, uh, and uh, one of the couples, she was asked, by whose authority are you refusing uh, to issue a license? And she said, by God's authority. She regards her conception of God's law as a higher law than the U.S. Constitution. Now, for a religious person, that may be so, but she's not acting as a private actor here. She's acting as the county clerk of Rowan County. And the Supreme Court has basically said that individuals don't have a constitutional right to an exemption from compliance with neutral, generally applicable laws. And responding to the Obergefell case, Governor Steve Beshear sent out a memo to all the county clerks, which basically said, okay, this is the law now. Kentucky's ban on same-sex marriage is unconstitutional. If same-sex couples show up, you have to issue them a marriage license. And it's she, uh, her lawyers refer to this as the same-sex marriage mandate in all yes. their papers. That this yeah, was the, they refer to this as the governor's mandate, and that's what they really yeah. challenge in all their papers. And is they're the saying, governor's mandate, and they're saying it's not neutral, right? But it is neutral with respect to religion, regardless of whether you, as an individual clerk, what your religious beliefs are, you have to comply with it, whether you're an atheist or an agnostic, or a Muslim, or a Jew, or a Christian, or a Catholic, whatever, okay. regardless of what your religious faith is, you have to comply with it because it isn't aimed at singling out any particular religion. It's establishing a general rule. Yeah. And under the uh, precedent of Employment Division versus Smith, uh, the Supreme Court opinion by Justice Scalia, who is no shrinking violet when it comes to the Free Exercise Clause, uh, Justice Scalia said, look, you can't run a country if individuals get to decide based on their personal beliefs whether they comply with the law. And Congress came storming in afterwards and passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was basically Congress agreeing to restrain its own legislative ability to require people to violate their substantial religious beliefs. So the, the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, says the state cannot pass a law that has the effect of putting an undue burden on someone's uh, free exercise of religion. Uh, 
uh, and Kentucky has a Religious Freedom Act of its own. But Judge Bunning rejected the argument that under the Kentucky Religious Freedom Act, uh, a, uh, an employee would be free to violate the federal constitutional rights of members of the public when it was their job to issue the licenses. I, there, there are arguments to be made on each side here. Uh, and this is a preliminary injunction, which is in effect. She still has a right to a trial. She still has a right to an appeal on the merits of the Sixth Circuit and to the Supreme Court if they want to hear it. Right. Well, and we should fast forward to yesterday now. All uh, right. So yeah. fast forward. Uh, she refused to issue marriage licenses on September 1st. Uh, the plaintiffs in the case filed a motion for contempt. They asked the judge to fine her some amount per day until she comes into compliance to incentivize her. Uh, the judge held a hearing in which uh, Ms. Davis was questioned as to the basis for her refusal, and she stoutly maintained that uh, her religious uh, beliefs mandate that she not be involved and mandate that she not allow her subordinates to issue marriage licenses because they have to, by law, have her signature on them. Yeah, her name. Her name has to appear. That's really what she seems to hang her her hat on. Her big thing is that her name on the license is an expression by her that these marriages are legitimate. And that this violates her freedom of religious conscience, religious belief. And uh, Judge Bunning disagrees. He says, you can believe whatever you want. This is not you speaking. This is the government speaking. When you And, and there are cases in which the Supreme Court has held that when a public employee engages in communicative activity and speech that is part of their job, that's not them speaking, it's the government speaking. So they as an individual do not have any First Amendment protection for their speech in that context. This is a controversial ruling. Uh, it has been somewhat unevenly applied because the court uh, indicated they weren't deciding issues of academic freedom in a public university setting. You know, there, there are issues to be played out on that as well. And it could be that this is a case that brings that issue back to the Supreme Court. Uh, this or one of these wedding cake cases. Uh, so the judge uh, surprised everybody by sending uh, Kim Davis to jail instead of imposing a fine. Well, he was afraid that the groups that are assisting her would just be yeah. giving her They'll the raise money. the money. They'll yeah. raise the money for her so she won't feel any pressure. So he's put her in jail. And then he addressed himself to her deputy clerks. And he said, and you guys go to jail too if you refuse to issue marriage licenses. So who will tell the court under oath that they will issue marriage licenses. And five out of the six clerks agreed to issue marriage licenses, some of them professing great reluctance. Uh, One testified, she says, I'm a minister's daughter. This is a terribly difficult thing for me, but I will obey the court. Uh, So this morning, September 4th, the first same-sex couple, and I believe this couple had been turned down at least four times previously. They've been trying. They, They just would not go out of the county to get a license. They insisted... They have a right to have a license in the county where they live and do business and pay taxes. And we should add to And they got a, a license this morning. A huge amount of protesters out front that were shouting the most disgusting file oh, yeah. at them as they walked in the building. This so morning, I, well, I for the past few of, days, yeah. for the past few days, there have been noisy uh, demonstrations, pro and con, outside the county courthouse. Uh, so uh, they got their license this morning. Uh, and from the story I read, in this morning's uh, news reports, they weren't planning to get married right away, and you have a period of time in to get a marriage license. They want to have a nice ceremony. They want to plan it out and everything, and they could never do any planning because they never knew when they were going to be able to get a license. So now they're going to plan it, 
and have a ceremony. But I would imagine someone else today will probably get married. So we'll probably have at least one marriage. And one other possible hiccup here is the the way the statute is written. It's not clear that a deputy clerk can disobey the head clerk on issuing licenses. I know you. Yeah, there's a, a diff- I've I've posted this question online. Uh, could someone later challenge these marriages as being invalid? because the clerk hadn't authorized the placement of her signature on the license. And there's no indication that she can delegate to a deputy clerk, and she hasn't delegated, in fact. Uh, and uh, the judge has said he'll let her out. He may, not, he may even let her out if she says she will not personally issue licenses, but she will authorize her deputies to issue the licenses. Uh, uh, the other, I mean, the other problem here is because she's elected... She basically has to be impeached by the state legislature right. if she doesn't resign. Right. She can't remove, uh, be removed unless she resigns. Now, the, the uh, judge, Judge Bunning, seemed to indicate that if she was willing to allow her deputies to issue the licenses, he'd let her out of jail. Yeah. He said, hey, we'll revisit this in a week. If she doesn't cave in before then, we'll go back and revisit it. At some point uh, in a civil case like this, the judge can decide that keeping her in jail is serving no useful purpose because she's not going to capitulate. Yeah and that this case is going to go to a merits trial and an appeal. Uh, so it could be that she'll be out of jail in a week, but her office has to continue issuing yeah. licenses or the uh, judge will put her back in. I mean, there's probably a very small number of gay couples in this rural county that are waiting on licenses, although right. now that this has attracted national attention, I think Anyone can go people there. from out of state have been coming to, right. to be part of it, I think. I and understood there was a couple from Ohio yeah, who came yeah, in yeah. the other day so. uh, because they saw an, an interesting way to make a statement for gay rights to come in and, and seek a license. Yes. Uh, that'll die down. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that the, uh, the uh, pleasures of... You know, uh, Rowan County are going to be a magnet here. Uh, it, it's not known as a great tourist location, I don't think. Uh, so anyway, to turn to the other, because yeah. you know, this is the public employee, and then we have the private sector business, and this has been an ongoing issue since we since before we achieved marriage equality, even in connection with domestic partnership and civil union ceremonies. Whether a private business, usually a small business, that sells goods and services either as their main thing or as an incidental part of their business for weddings can refuse to do business with same-sex couples. And we thought we had a pretty definitive answer to this from the New Mexico Supreme Court uh, when they said a wedding photographer was violating the state's public accommodation law when uh, she refused to uh, provide the usual services on offer through her website to a lesbian couple for a commitment ceremony in New Mexico. That was before New Mexico had same-sex marriage. The New Mexico Supreme Court said there was a violation of the public accommodations law and uh, there was no First Amendment violation of her rights. She claimed that photography is an expressive activity and that her rights, freedom of expression, as well as religion, were violated, and they disagreed. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to review that case. So we thought that was the end of it, but uh, this has been popping up all over the country. Bakers, florists, caterers, people who uh, operate any kind of marriage-related business here in New York. We had a, a farm that in their farmhouse uh, hosted marriage ceremonies, and they didn't want to host the same-sex marriage, so we have a lawsuit upstate involving that. And this one in Colorado got a lot of press attention, uh, and uh, it involved a, uh, a gay couple 
Charlie Craig and David Mullins. Uh, at the time, same-sex marriage was not available in Colorado. They were planning to go to Massachusetts to get married, but they wanted to come back to Colorado and have a celebration, inviting family and friends because it's too expensive to ask everyone to pick up and go to Massachusetts. They live in Colorado. Uh, so they went into the uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop, which has a specialty in custom-prepared wedding cakes, and they asked the proprietor, Jack Phillips, to do a wedding cake for them, and he said, no. He said, I don't do same-sex weddings. Don't believe in it. And they're not legal in Colorado. He said, I'm happy to bake you anything else you want, but not a wedding cake. And he insists that he's not discriminating based on sexual orientation because he's happy to do business with them. He just won't do a wedding cake because it violates his religious beliefs. Uh, so he turned them down. They went and they found someone else to do the wedding cake. Uh, but uh, the mother of one of the men wasn't willing to uh, let this rest. Charlie Craig's mother called up Phillips and uh, engaged in a rather passionate conversation with him on the phone. And that led to the filing of a charge of discrimination. Now, we got to make clear that in these private business cases, a, a discrimination charge can only be brought in a jurisdiction that bans discrimination based on sexual orientation. Uh, and that's not everywhere. That's not even a, a majority of states, although it is probably states constituting a majority of the population at this point. And there's no federal law on point. Uh, we'll be talking about that a little later. Mm -hmm. So uh, they filed a charge. Colorado does have an anti-discrimination law. The uh, agency decided in their favor. Uh, the commission, in an appellate capacity, affirmed that there was a violation. They said, There's, we don't see any First Amendment uh, uh, defense here. And it went to court. Uh, he brought it to court, and the Colorado Court of Appeals issued its ruling on August 13th, affirming the commission. They said, uh, when somebody is baking a cake, and, and he's arguing baking a cake is an artistic thing, it's design, there's wording on it, he said it's speech, and they said, well, just a minute. When the cake shows up at the ceremony and the guests look at it and it says congratulations on the wedding of or something like that, a happy marriage or something like that, do they think it's the baker blessing the couple or do they think that this is a cake that was purchased by the couple or on their behalf to communicate joy about their wedding? It's not the baker speaking. It's the, the cake has been purchased. It hasn't been spontaneously produced as an artwork by the baker. Mm -hmm. And that if people attribute the message to anybody, they're going to attribute it to the wedding celebrants and their families. They're not going to attribute it to the baker. Uh, so they, they didn't think that this uh, free speech or uh, freedom of religion argument, they said the, the baker's religion isn't implicated in this. There's no burden is placed on his free exercise of religion for him. And they said, furthermore... They even hadn't even gotten to the point of discussing what he was going to write on the cake. They just said, will you do a wedding cake? And he said, no. So we're not even sure what speech he would be compelled to give. What if he was just asked to write the names of the two couples on the cake without anything more? And uh, he could, they could go out and they could buy one of those little trinkets with like two grooms and stick it on top of the cake. He didn't have to do it. All they needed for him was the cake. So uh, the court rejected it, and, and I think uh, there's enough ideology here that he's going to try to appeal to the Colorado Supreme Court and ultimately to the U.S. Supreme Court. So they didn't want to get involved with the wedding photographer. Here's 
probably somewhere down the line a second shot for them if they want to get involved with this issue. I predict they won't want to get involved with this issue because their precedents are pretty clear. Uh, the lower court precedents are pretty clear. And there will be pockets of resistance around the country where this will come up, and there will be parts of the country where there is no ban on discrimination where local businesses can refuse to do this unless we get a federal act passed that would apply to it. And even if a federal act were passed, I question whether it would apply to a small local business. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because of Commerce Clause issues and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And federal statutes don't necessarily hit small local businesses. Right. I guess someone could say the flour and the sugar moved in interstate commerce. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. So, All right. So that's, that's covered our story a lot. about yeah. the implementation, and we've covered a lot. So. Yeah. So we'll take a short break. When we return, we'll change gears and discuss the controversial raid of the Rent Boy website and the federal charges brought against its owners and owner and employees. We're back discussing the provocative raid and impending prosecution of the people behind the rentboy.com website. Can we maybe start by talking about why the timing of all this was so interesting, Art? Well, it's a very interesting juxtaposition of events. On August 11th, Amnesty International, a non-governmental organization that is concerned with international human rights issues, uh, passed a resolution which was a major change of position for them. They had, had not previously advocated this, but uh, as of August 11th, Amnesty International now considers uh, national and local laws prohibiting prostitution to be a violation of human rights. Uh, they've decided that, yes, there are sub-issues here that remain very important issues, uh, sexual exploitation of children, trafficking people for sex work, things of that sort, but they, they are taking the position that a consensual transaction among adults for private acts of sex for compensation should not be a crime. And uh, various other human rights organizations have followed suit, and just a few days later, uh, a bunch of lesbian and gay rights uh, legal organizations followed suit. The Transgender Law Center, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, Lambda Legal, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, and the National Center for Transgender Equality issued a joint statement just days after, really, August 20th, a little more than a week after, uh, echoing Amnesty International's position. What they didn't know on August 20th was that two days earlier, on August 18th, Attorneys from the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York with agents of the Department of Homeland Security had filed with the Eastern District Court a document called Complaint and Affidavit in Support of Arrest Warrants against the owner and employees of RentBoy.com. This is before the LGBT rights organizations had issued their statement supporting Amnesty International's position that prostitution should be decriminalized. Uh, so the federal government uh, filed this uh, asking for an arrest warrant claiming that rentboy.com was in violation of a federal statute which prohibits the use of instrumentalities of interstate commerce for violating a state law. 
And one of the state laws that they claim was violated here is a New York state statute that makes it a crime to promote prostitution. So they're not prosecuting uh, Rent Boy or going after Rent Boy for actually engaging in prostitution, although uh, it's sort of odd. A, a spokesperson for the Eastern District referred to Rent Boy as a, an online brothel. Well, it isn't. It's, the, it's not operating a brothel. It's not employing prostitutes. And in fact, my understanding is that uh, escorts pay a fee to Rent Boy to list themselves there and, and uh, put, put up their pictures and their information. Uh, but they don't share their earnings with Rent Boy. So to call Rent Boy a, the operator of a brothel or a pimp you know, is uh, an inaccurate characterization. But at any rate, in, in this affidavit, they go into a very long description of the Rent Boy website, and they say even though the website uh, states that uh, they are not, uh, as it were, promoting prostitution. They, I mean, they don't even use the word prostitute on the website. Uh, they call the people who advertise escorts, which the affidavit says is a euphemism, that they're actually prostitutes, and uh, that in the listings, the escorts indicate the fees they charge and the acts they're willing to engage in, which include sexual acts. And therefore, uh, the theory of the case is that Rent Boy is sort of a high-class online version of uh, an advertising mechanism for escorts to connect with clients. And that by setting it up, administering it, advertising it, and promoting it, the owners and employees of RentBoy.com are in effect promoting prostitution, and therefore they're in violation of the statute. So they filed this on the 18th, and they asked the court to seal the documents because they were afraid if word got out before they actually went out to uh, raid the, the offices of Rent Boy and to arrest the people named on these warrants, uh, they would flee. And so this was all done quietly under seal, uh, not known to the public. And then uh, just days, yeah. you know, days after uh, the, uh, I think it was just two days after, was it August 23rd? You know, just a few days after the LGBT organizations had gone on record supporting Amnesty International, these raids were carried out uh, with the assistance of the New York City Police Department. Uh, they showed up at the homes of these people to arrest them early in the morning before they would even report to work. I think I don't think any of them was at work yet. Uh, and uh, they also showed up at uh, the Rent Boy offices on 14th Street in Manhattan and they seized records, they seized computers, they basically shut down the site. Uh, and uh, it caused an uproar in the community, of course, uh, because I think there was widespread uh, agreement with Amnesty International's position that uh, sex work should not be a crime. But in terms of constitutional law, so far, all attempts to get courts to declare laws against prostitution or promoting prostitution unconstitutional have been unsuccessful in the United States. And only one state has legislated to allow prostitution on very narrow terms. That's the state of Nevada, which allows counties to opt out of the state's prostitution law, but only under a system of licensed brothels, which are inspected by the state, which 
uh, places various health requirements on the prostitutes. Uh, so it's a very, very limited exception. Prostitution in general is not legal in Nevada. It's, uh, counties can decide, and I think they exclude it from the major cities. It's rural counties that are allowed to have legal licensed brothels which pay fees to the county. Uh, so it's a very constrained situation. Uh, if you, you compare the approach in England or Canada, for example, where prostitution itself is not illegal, uh, public solicitation for prostitution is illegal. Maintaining a brothel is illegal. But uh, individual prostitutes who do not publicly solicit business are allowed to enter into transactions with individual clients for private sexual activity for compensation. This is true in Canada and in the United Kingdom and a few other countries, the Netherlands, for example. Uh, but most countries outlaw it. Now, several cases have been filed challenging prostitution laws since the Supreme Court's decision in Lawrence versus Texas, striking down the Texas sodomy law. Uh, the argument was made that the Supreme Court had identified a sphere of liberty protected under the Due Process Clause, applicable to the states through the 14th Amendment, under which private consensual adult sexual activity was sheltered from criminal process. And uh, the court did indicate in its own decision that it wasn't deciding whether prostitution was constitutionally protected. It was only deciding whether the conduct at issue in Lawrence versus Texas, which was private consensual gay sex, was protected. So lower courts have said, all right, the Supreme Court said that they weren't deciding this question. And that was as much as sending a signal that they didn't consider prostitution to come within this sphere of liberty because it is a commercial transaction. And once it's a commercial transaction, the state has reasons for getting involved, which uh, we have held the state doesn't have if it's not a commercial transaction, unless it involves minors or situations where someone is incapable of giving valid consent or things like that. The, the court really cabined its decision. It said, we are protecting private adult consensual activity and nothing beyond that in this decision. Uh, so lower courts have rejected claims that uh, prostitutes have a right of control over their bodies and to, to decide to use their bodies to earn an income by selling sexual services. Courts have rejected that argument. Uh, so it's, it seems to me... Uh, knowing just what is alleged in the complaint, that if these uh, individuals are subsequently prosecuted, because so far they've just been arrested, we don't have indictments and prosecutions yet. If they are prosecuted, um, they have probably violated the statute. Of course, the, the government will have to prove that this, this isn't just connecting escorts with clients without any knowledge or intent that sex is going to take place. Uh, but they sort of buried a landmine in this document, uh, which is basically in the form of a verified complaint and affidavit by a Homeland Security agent, Susan Ruiz, who was in charge of the investigation. They said many of the listings on RentBoy contained a link to another website that is totally apart and independent from RentBoy, in which clients publish reviews of their experiences with the escorts. They rate them. As, uh, as recommended or satisfactory or unsatisfactory, and they describe their experiences, and they also tell how much they paid. So this clearly is evidence that could be connected to the rent boys because of the cross-referencing of the two websites. 
to show that there was prostitution taking place and that the people who operated Rent Boy had to know. It was sort of, it was in their face that prostitution was taking place. And, and furthermore, the owner of uh, rentboy.com was a bit, a bit cagey about what he said in public, but relatively open about the fact uh, they, they sponsored a, uh, an annual event called the Hookies, which was an award to the best rent boy in each category, uh, at, at which uh, there was an infiltration by plainclothes federal investigators uh, to observe what was going on. And they spoke with him, and he was somewhat unguarded in what he said to them. Uh, so, you should mention that is what yeah. a lot of gay groups are upset about is yeah. the the level of federal resources that were devoted to right. This. And the question has arisen because this this website has been around for almost two decades. It was uh, formed back in the mid nineteen nineties. Why suddenly now? Is it because Amnesty International, by uh, passing this resolution, has suddenly provoked the federal government uh, that the Obama administration doesn't want to be criticized by Congress for being soft on prostitution? So they can. But I don't think that's it because this investigation goes back several years, clearly. Uh, the investigation that was described goes back over a period of time. In fact, it goes back to a period of time when the U.S. attorney in Brooklyn was Loretta Lynch, who was the new attorney general. But the investigation was carried out by Department of Homeland Security. I don't think that the U.S. attorney's office was necessarily involved until DHS decided that they had the goods and then they needed a U.S. attorney's office to actually go into court and uh, seek arrest warrants. And we should also mention, I mean, a lot of people are concerned that uh, the, the sex workers themselves are going to be charged or that now that they've seized all the computers, they're going to have a way you know. to find them. And that's what a lot of the groups are very right. worried they, about. They're worried about that. But, you know, why now? Why did this happen? And I think there's a hint of it in this affidavit. I think as long as the federal government was in a position to say, we don't know anything about what's going on, you know, we don't spend our time cruising the internet to try to find violations of this law. But if something is forcibly brought to their attention, they may feel, you know, we have to do something. And what happened was Rent Boy applied to the Department of Homeland Security's Immigration Service for a work visa for a foreign national to come in to work as an employee of Rent Boy. And that involves describing the work that they're being brought in for. Because, you know, you're bringing in someone, they have to have specialized skills. You're bringing them in because they can provide something that you can't get locally. Uh, there has to be a justification for bringing someone in on a special visa. And so all of a sudden, Rent Boy brought itself to the attention of the Department of Homeland Security with this application. And it may be that that triggered this whole investigation. I don't know that for a fact. I'm speculating. But they... They mention in the affidavit that Rent Boy applied for a visa for this one person to bring them in. And once the application for a visa has been received, it's, sort of, it's harder for the department to say, we know nothing about this activity. Now the activity has been brought to their attention. The name is Rent Boy. Rent Boy is slang for a prostitute, usually a young one. In fact, in England, that's the term for an escort. They don't say escort, they say Rent Boys. Uh, so... Uh, they could very well say this was sort of throwing it in our face, so we sort of had to inquire. So it could be that Rent Boy brought this on themselves by seeking the special visa. This is just speculation on my part based on reading the affidavit. Uh, there is something sort of brazen about the name. And uh, also Mr. Jeffrey Urant, the lead defendant who's the owner, uh, he chose for himself 
the email address on their website of cyberpimp at rentboy.com. Now, describing oneself as a pimp sounds uh, like you're, you're sort of saying to law enforcement, okay, you got a law against pimping? Here I am. <laughs> Do your worst. You know, so uh, uh, people see these grand conspiracies and stuff. I'm not so sure. And I just think. to end again, putting in a little context about what people are upset about, I think, um, you know, people say this is going to take place no matter what, uh, that yeah. there's, and if it's consensual, that there's no victim, um, and that especially the, the complaint, the description of gay sex and the complaint is very lurid and, uh, you know, not very accept yeah. doesn't sound very accepting of the fact of gay sexual practices. Well, I think it's, it's uh, in, in, uh, in matter of fact language, it describes stuff that most gay men would not talk to their mothers about, yeah. but many of them do. You know, but most people don't talk about what they do sexually. No, you're right. I'm just you know, maybe being maybe devil's advocate here. maybe a bunch of gay guys sitting around in private and getting a little drunk. You know, they may yes. talk about what they do, but but the point is, this made public what many people consider private and inappropriate for public discussion because it's private stuff, and uh, many people have described this uh, complaint in the affidavit as being framed in such a way as intended to inflame disgust with gay sex. And that that's not the role of the federal government. And furthermore, this is the Department of Homeland Security. And what does this have to do with security? It's a victimless crime. Most of the escorts, although not all, I would imagine, are U.S. citizens or legal residents. Uh, but to the extent that there are undocumented people who are doing escorting work and using rent boy, that's another basis for uh, Homeland Security to be concerned because it violates federal laws for undocumented people to work in the United States without working papers if they're not citizens. Mm -hmm. you know? So uh, there, there are various uh, illegal things going on, and Homeland Security, despite its name, is responsible for more than just anti-terrorism activity. When uh, the department was created after 9-11, the decision was made to switch the immigration service from the Justice Department to the Department of Homeland Security on the grounds that immigration into and out of the U.S. was a major flashpoint for possible uh, security concerns of terrorists coming in. After all, the guys who did 9-11, they weren't U.S. citizens. They were all foreign nationals who were somehow able to get into the United States. So immigration was seen as key. And so now the entire immigration service operation is under Homeland Security. That's how they got involved. So it's, it's not like they're filing this complaint to say this is a national security issue. They're filing this complaint to say this is an issue of violating a federal statute and perhaps they're also saying implicitly, and it came to our attention because of the immigration issues. So, you know, where is it going to go from here? Uh, it's up to the prosecutors now to decide what criminal charges in, in particular they're going to prefer against uh, these people. From the complaint and affidavit, which was just used for the purpose of getting the warrants to arrest and to search and to seize things, uh, it sounds like they would be prosecuting them under what is colloquially called the Travel Act, uh, since uh, the uh, operative provision says traveling in interstate commerce or using the facilities of interstate commerce to uh, violate the law, which can include the violation of state law. And they specifically list the kinds of state laws they're talking about, and they list prostitution laws among them. And then they cite the New York prostitution laws uh, here, which they say Rent Boy is violating not 
on the ground that the uh, employees of Rent Boy are themselves engaging in prostitution, but that they're promoting it. And New York, it. New York, well, they, they actually use the word promoting prostitution yeah. in the criminal statute. And, uh, I mean, if, if you're running a, a website to help escorts connect with clients and the escorts are going to charge the clients money to have sex, then you're promoting prostitution, yeah. it seems to me. And, and the issue is proving that they knew that the escorts weren't just, uh, it wasn't just to sit there and chew the fat you know, maybe go out to dinner with a client or something, that it was going to involve sex. And when they have, they have a form for the escorts to fill out saying what they're willing to do with the client, and it includes oral sex and anal sex, you know, it's listed, then, you know, they can't claim ignorance. And they're saying that about all the employees. They're saying the employees can't claim ignorance about what was going on here. All right, we will take another short break, and when we return... We'll discuss a disappointing decision out of a Maryland appellate court involving the parental rights of a non-biological parent. We are back discussing the case of Conover versus Conover, a Maryland decision finding that the lesbian partner of a biological mother is not entitled to visitation because they married after the child was born. We've seen this troubling result before, haven't we, Art? Yes, uh, we have. And there are actually laws in many states, including Maryland, that address the situation where the parents of a child get married after the child is born, uh, ways to retroactively establish the parentage of the non-biological parent. Uh, but the court in Conover versus Conover said the Maryland statute that does that, the parentage statute, doesn't apply. So we should uh, go back and give the chronology so people understand what happened here. Uh, Brittany and Michelle uh, began their relationship in 2002. They lived in the District of Columbia. Uh, they discussed having a child, and Brittany became pregnant through donor insemination in 2009. At the time, the intention was they would raise the child as co-parents. At that time, marriage, same-sex marriage was not available in the District of Columbia. In fact, only three states in the country had same-sex marriage at that time, uh, none nearby. Uh, so uh, uh, Brittany became pregnant in 2009. In March 2010, the District of Columbia City Council legislated in favor of marriage equality, and marriage licenses became available in the District of Columbia. But they didn't get married sort of interestingly. On April 4th, 2010, Brittany gave birth to their son, Jackson William Lee Echol Conover, and that long list of names implicates the uh, family surnames of the two families there that were combined. Uh, the birth certificate listed Brittany as the mother and left a blank in the space for the father. On September 28th, 2010, several months later, they were married in the District of Columbia and took their common surname of Conover. And the marriage did not do very well, as sometimes happens. Sometimes the birth of a child uh, puts a, a, a disruptive factor into a relationship and things uh, don't go so well. The women separated in September 2011, just a year after getting married. Uh, Michelle continued to have regular visitation with Jackson for a while, but in July 2012, Brittany cut off further contact. Uh, and in February 2013, Brittany filed a pro se divorce action. Uh, by that time, before this had happened, they had moved to Maryland uh, in the suburbs outside of D.C. Uh, so in February 2013, 
Brittany files a divorce action which makes no mention of the custody of the child. She assumed as the birth mother she was the sole legal parent. Uh, Michelle, uh, also proceeding pro se at that point, filed an answer asserting a claim for visitation rights. And then uh, a month later, on March 14th, filed a counterclaim for divorce. At this point, she was still pro se, but when the first hearing was scheduled, she decided to get counsel. So at the hearing on April 30th of uh, 2013, Michelle was represented, Brittany was not. Uh, And at that hearing, Brittany said she's not entitled to visitation because she's not a legal parent. She's just a third party. And under Maryland's law, a third party does not have a right to visitation over the protests of the legal parent. And ultimately, the trial judge agreed with her, uh, said, uh, you know, the various equitable theories have been brought forward on behalf of non-married co-parents. And they apply here, too, because at the, child, at the time the child was born, these women weren't married. And the court did not see the application of the post-marital parentage statute because for one thing it used gendered language. It was about establishing uh, paternal rights. And it isn't even clear that it's about establishing paternal rights as much as paternal obligations. That the purpose of the statute was really to make sure that the biological father of a child who was not its legal parent would nonetheless be obligated you know, if if they married the mother shortly after the child was born, would be obligated to provide support, etc. Uh, so uh, the trial judge rejected Michelle's claim for visitation, and the court of appeals, uh, regretfully, it, it appears, because the uh, the author of the opinion for the three judge panel, Robert Zarnack, said it was a sad case, because it was clear that Michelle had a legitimate interest. Uh, in maintaining contact with this child whose conception she had planned and with whom she had bonded as a mother during the first year of its life. Uh, But he said, the present state of Maryland case law leaves us no choice. The Court of Appeals, the highest court in Maryland, has rejected equitable estoppel theories, equitable parentage theories, and uh, the statute is written in gendered language. Michelle can't claim to be a father. Uh, And... uh, the court said, sorry, there's nothing we can do for you here. Go to the legislature. In a concurring opinion, uh, Judge Douglas Nazarian said, this isn't just sad, this is frustrating because the legislature had better get off the stick and address the diversity of family life in Maryland. You know, not everyone is born with parents who are married to each other. Lots of people are born to unmarried couples, and we've got to face reality and adjust our laws. So it's sort of a clarion call to the legislature from Judge Nazarian. He said, I am a frustrated judge because I can't do justice in this case, because the statutes and the common law precedents of our Court of Appeals stand in the way. And he agrees the court's decision is correct as a matter of law in Maryland. And so, you know, we've got same-sex marriage now. We've got it in Maryland uh, these uh, we, we got it in D.C., these women married. But the point is, we're in a transitional period where there are plenty of same-sex couples who had kids before they got married. And also, it's not just that we're in a transitional period. We are in a society where lots of people live together without getting married, and many of them have children without getting married. 
for some, having children is sort of the cue to get married. Uh, if by quirk of fate they take that cue a little slowly and they get married after the child is born, should this be the consequence that the uh, non-biological parent, in the sense like the birth mother in a same-sex couple, uh, has exclusive parental rights? unless there's an adoption. I mean, that was another issue that was raised. Why wasn't there an adoption? Well, you might say they didn't see the need for an adoption because, after all, they were going to get married. Why didn't they get married while she was pregnant? I mean, they couldn't get married before she got pregnant unless they went out of state, to New York, not even to New York then. It was to, to Massachusetts or Iowa. You know. Some people don't like to get married or when they're pregnant, you know? Yeah, and it may be uh, that, you know, she was toward the end of her pregnancy. By the time D.C. started issuing licenses in, uh, in March of 2010, she was about to give birth. She gave birth at the beginning of April. So maybe there she is in her eighth or ninth month, and she's not in a position to go out and get married, mm -hmm. to go through a ceremony, to do anything. Uh, we don't know anything about the nature of the pregnancy. Some pregnancies require bed rest the last few weeks. So for whatever reason, they didn't get married until after she gave birth and, you know, the immediate uh, stuff settled down. The immediate post-birth months are a pretty hectic time. And then finally in September, they were able to put their act together and get married. Uh, should th this chronology totally foreclose Michelle from any parental rights, whatever? And visitation is about the least there's no, she's not asking for joint custody. Uh, and Brittany is not suing her for child support. And there is an intimation in the decision that if Brittany was suing her for child support, she might get it. So it sounds kind of unfair from, you know, that there's no reciprocity here mm -hmm. in terms of rights and uh, responsibilities. So this case should be a wake-up call to the Maryland legislature that they need to do some revisions to their family law. All right, we'll take our last break, and when we return, we'll discuss the sweeping LGBT rights bill introduced in Congress over the summer. We are back for the Of Note segment, discussing the Equality Act, the bill introduced by Democrats in July in Congress. Very comprehensive proposed legislation that has... Uh, for once, perhaps, brought all the interested advocates together, but for that reason, it also has very little chance of passing. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yeah. Uh, the vehicle for gay rights in Congress over the uh, past, well, at least two decades, has been the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which was narrowly focused on creating a standalone statute that would make it a uh, federal civil offense for an employer in interstate commerce to intentionally discriminate against somebody because of their sexual orientation and in the most recent iteration of that bill, their gender identity. No disparate impact claims were allowed. And it incorporated until recently, until 2013, it incorporated by reference the definition of marriage in the Defense of Marriage Act, so it precluded any claims for uh, spousal benefits or things like that, same-sex couples. So it's a very narrowly focused statute, mainly to establish the principle in federal law of non-discrimination in employment, or at least not intentional discrimination in employment. And it also had, a, in its most recent versions, a pretty substantial religious exemption that many people found to be too broad, much broader than the uh, religious exemption in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 
which basically says religious organizations can pose a religious test for employment. But that's, it's religious organizations. It isn't anything broader than that. Uh, so uh, since there was apparently no chance of even that passing, although uh, it had once come close to passage, well, it actually passed the House once and it passed the Senate once, but it never passed both chambers in the same Congress. Right. And uh, the addition of gender identity made it seem highly unlikely that it would pass in the present Congress. Uh, so the decision was made, let's go back to the drawing board and put together the most wide-ranging, comprehensive bill that we can possibly do, get it on the record, introduce it into Congress, and then use it to rally for support, to lobby for support, to try to you know get more sponsors one at a time, to try to get to the point where perhaps as public sentiment is changing, as we have same-sex marriage, as we got rid of sodomy laws, perhaps we can make it enough of a bipartisan effort that in a future Congress it could pass. So the bill they came up with abandons the methodology of the Employment Discrimination Act entirely, and it says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to identify the federal statutes that ban discrimination and that list forbidden grounds of discrimination, and we're going to amend them to add sexual orientation and gender identity, wherever they appear. It's going to deal with housing. It's going to deal with public accommodations. It's going to deal with employment. It's going to deal juries. with juries, with credit. It's going, to, it's going to be wide-ranging. And furthermore, we're going to put under a provision that says the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act does not provide a defense under this statute. Uh, so to the extent that there is a religious exemption, it is narrowly the religious exemptions that exist in existing federal statutes, which are rather narrow in the discrimination statutes, basically to allow religious organizations to uh, make employment decisions or service decisions consistent with their religious beliefs. Uh, furthermore, and I thought that this was a pretty notable, notable point, in Title VII of the uh, Civil Rights Act, which bans employment discrimination, Congress recognizes a defense called the bona fide, quali bona fide uh, employment uh, qualifications, BFOQ. And the bona fide occupational qualification basically says that an employer can come in and can prove that they need to discriminate because of the nature of their business. Uh, and this applies to sex discrimination and religious discrimination. Uh, it does not apply to race discrimination because Congress said we can't imagine a situation where an employer can be able to show that someone's race should make a difference in whether they get a job. But we can accept the argument that their sex might make a difference or that their religion might make a difference, depending on the nature of the job. Well, in this bill... Sexual orientation and gender identity are not added to the list of bona fide occupational qualifications. They're treated like race and color. Congress is basically saying, or the sponsors are saying, Congress not yet, but the sponsors are saying that uh, we can't see any kind of legitimate argument that someone's sexual orientation or gender identity should be a job qualification. Very interesting. Uh, another change from the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act would only outlaw intentional discrimination. But in this act, this bill, you're just sticking these forbidden grounds onto the existing lists, which means any legal theory that could be used under these statutes 
can be used for sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. Uh, so the courts under Title VII develop the idea of disparate impact discrimination. That's when an employer adopts a policy that appears on its face neutral with respect to race or sex or religion, but actually has the effect of disqualifying people because of their race or their sex or their religion. And disparate impact theory has been actually a very powerful engine of attacking employer practices that have the effect of excluding people, members of particular groups from the workplace. Uh, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act expressly excluded disparate impact claims. But this new Equality Act doesn't. So uh, LGBT people would have the protection of the disparate impact theory. And in fact, as recently as just this year, the Supreme Court decided an important case holding that the disparate impact theory is available under the Fair Housing Act. So uh, it's, it's a very wide-ranging bill. And Unfortunately, not one Republican in the Senate or the House agreed to be a co-sponsor. And they, of course, control both chambers. They control both chambers, so it won't even get a hearing because the committee chairs won't allow it. Uh, and interestingly, ENDA did have Republican sponsorship, but then ENDA was a much narrower bill. And there were some uh, Republican members of Congress who were you know, the very small, moderate ends. The ones with gay children. Well, ones with gay children are the ones who are representing so-called purple states, uh, where they face close re-elections, uh, under 5% margins on election, unless they're longtime incumbents with a lot of name recognition and goodwill. But, and so there are some Republicans in the Senate and the House who are sensitive to lesbian and gay issues because of the nature of their constituency and who were co-sponsors who voted to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, you know, who uh, uh, voted for the hate crimes law. And these are people who were co-sponsors of ENDA, but they have not yet signed up on this one because it's just, it goes so much broader. Uh, and I think the, uh, the RIFRA exclusion as a defense is going to cause some problems with them. I think the inclusion of disparate impact claims is going to cause problems. Uh, I think the, the lack of recognizing a bona fide occupational qualification in certain circumstances might conceptually pose problems for them. So uh, it's going to be difficult getting bipartisan support for this bill. And it's not going to pass without it unless there's a Democratic sweep of Congress at a time when a Democrat's in the White House. And I, do think that, I don't think anyone foresees that in the near uh, future. I think many of the groups, uh, HRC in particular, has had dealt with so much criticism in the past about what's been left out of bills that they sort of decided this time that uh, they're going to go all in, make everybody yeah. happy. It just makes yeah. it impossible to pass. And there's another thing that, uh, you know, you, you introduce a bill, a new bill, maybe with the idea that it's not going to pass anytime soon, but the bill can be a rallying point. It can be a mechanism to raise money for political action, to enlist people to engage in lobbying of their member of Congress to become a co-sponsor. And then, of course, uh, these political organizations issue their report cards and in evaluating candidates for office uh, for their positions on lesbian and gay issues, the question whether they were a co-sponsor of this bill will go on the report card. Uh, so certain candidates who are doing pretty well as, as uh, sponsors of ENDA, they're going to lose some of that uh, credibility that they had uh -huh. as gay rights supporters if they don't sign on to this. And so that may end up being a potent tool for getting some bipartisan sponsorship down the line, but it's going to take some time. Uh, meantime, the Obama administration 
has, through executive orders and guidelines and policy changes, gone pretty far. And, and we, we had a new one uh, just this week where they uh, have a proposed new regulation over, under Obamacare that uh, any uh, health plan that receives any federal money, like through Medicaid payments or things of that sort, is going to have to cover a broad range of medical services for transgender people, including sex reassignment, which traditionally has not been covered by general health insurance policies. Uh, so they're taking steps. And uh, there's uh, one of the issues under Obamacare is that uh, the regulations forbid sex discrimination in employee benefits plans. And of course, that would also, for employee benefit plans, be covered by Title VII and under public accommodations law and state insurance laws would be uh, covered for insurance companies, but not necessarily sexual orientation discrimination. Well, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, as was our one of our lead stories last month in Law Notes, issued an opinion on July 15th holding that discrimination because of sexual orientation is sex discrimination. And to the extent that that, ca that catches on with the courts, uh, it could be that Obamacare will be held to incorporate a ban on discriminating against LGBT people as well as T people. Uh, and the more we get it established as sex discrimination, the less radical the Equality Act looks. So we'll see how that rolls out. All right. Covered a lot in this podcast. That's all the time we have for today. And we should mention that the issue of Lesbian and Gay Law Notes that was just published is the longest issue in the history of the publication, which helps to explain why we're running over an hour, which we usually don't yeah, do. Yeah, but plenty uh, we got a holiday weekend coming up, so people have time to read and listen, hopefully. Uh, thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow the gal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY. And Art is now on Twitter as well. I think, yes. is, is it ASLeonard1? ALeonard1. ALeonard1. Uh, and also, we are on Facebook. Thanks again. Enjoy the rest of the holiday weekend, and we will see you in October. 